Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Everyone loves the idea of a level playing field. We're drawn to the fairness. Expectations of fair competition underlie the assumption that the workforce is a meritocracy. Meritocracy is a system in which power, growth, and advancement are vested in individual people on the basis of talent, effort, and achievement. The idea is that advancement in such a system is based solely on performance as measured through objective criteria and demonstrated achievement. In short, meritocracy principles are built on the assumption that objective evaluations are possible, and we know scientifically that we are by nature not objective. The human mind is not capable of being totally objective. And if we know that, we begin to see some of the limitations of meritocracy, where much of our evaluation in hiring and promoting is not based on purely objective criteria, despite our utopian belief and desire for this to be the case. That we are truly in a meritocracy in any domain is unlikely. In fact, Often, any questioning of the validity of meritocracy advancement or strategies to help interrupt bias is seen as some kind of violation of meritocracy. And much of this stems from the belief that issues of inequality are no longer an issue. If the problem is fixed and the biases are not there, then the interruption of the status quo is incorrectly viewed as a violation of meritocracy rather than attempt to create a more level playing field. But the myth of meritocracy rests on assumptions. First, that women are already achieving proportionate representation in almost all professional contexts, which is statistically just not true. And second, that any lingering disparities are attributable to women's choices or capability gaps. And the evidence suggests this, too, is not accurate. And part of this misconception is that gains have been seen as evidence that the problem is solved. But when you look at the big picture data, this is indisputably not the case. When there is this strong meritocracy belief system, it causes two big problems. First, if it is a meritocracy, we would expect a more representative landscape. That is, a workforce including those top leadership roles, those positions of power, pay, and prestige, to reflect the current makeup of the workforce in terms of gender. But the evidence shows this is absolutely not the case. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, if there is indeed a true meritocracy, and if women are not advancing, it suggests the problem lies outside of the organization and structural issues. And it places the blame directly on the shoulders of the underrepresented group. It leads to a seemingly logical but deeply flawed argument that we need to fix the women. If we accept this premise that the environment is a true, objective, and fair meritocracy where the best performance results in advancement and women are not advancing within that system, then it must be the women. 
And so this is very problematic for us, especially for ambitious warriors doing all the things and more and still not seeing the promised results and then hearing it's on them for not achieving those promised results. So let's interrupt the meritocracy fallacy, the myth that exists because the evidence just does not support it. It is incredibly difficult to achieve a pure meritocracy when human beings have different values, attitudes, and belief systems and experiences, as well as a host of biases resulting from all of this. If you want to make the choice to believe in this pure meritocracy, you are choosing to not be a part of the solution in creating a level playing field for women in the workforce, plain and simple. There are a host of evidence-based, data-driven studies which prove there are very real, pervasive gender biases and barriers that make meritocracy a great idea in theory, but in reality, an ideological fallacy which serves to not only hinder women's advancement, but also to blame women in the process. It individualizes the problem and exonerates organizations and societal structures at the very tangible expense of women and ultimately organizations who are not reaping the benefits of highly qualified women's contributions at the top levels. So let's start with what we know about the real outcomes, how in a meritocracy, you might expect to see a representative leadership landscape, but indeed we don't see that. In corporate America, for example, where women are receiving more than half of the graduate business degrees from top universities, you would expect to see more equity. But what we continue to see is a pyramid, as we have seen for a century, where today women account for half of middle management roles, but still less than 10% of top executive leadership roles. And let's consider academia. You would expect in the industry that does the research and puts out the data and one that has very specific criteria for hiring and promotion that you would see qualified men and women advance at a similar pace. But of course we don't. Even among similarly qualified faculty, the outcomes are not what you might expect. As is the case in virtually every domain, the number of women diminishes the higher up the chain we climb. And I've talked about this across domains in many other episodes, but it is really important to consider it here as it relates to this meritocracy fallacy. If all things are equal and everyone has the same opportunity, then women should be in those top-level roles. So I'm going to remind everyone that the data, the scoreboard on women in top-level leadership roles remains bleak. The pipeline remains broken. And when we cling to the belief in meritocracy, we shift the problem from a broken pipeline for women to broken women. And that is not okay. If it's not the pipeline and it is a true meritocracy, then what is the explanation? And I can run the explanations that have been offered quite succinctly. There are two opposing arguments in the literature for why equally qualified and talented women don't advance anywhere near the rate of their male counterparts, even when they implement the best practice recommendations from the research in their respective fields and have the same or better qualifications. These are essentially divided into either push or pull variables. A push variable is an external factor that creates workforce barriers for women, which push them out of the professional pipeline. 
Whereas a pull variable are those internal personal pulls that result in things like career slow tracking or transition out of the professional pipeline. This is that oversimplification that we talk about so much here on the Advancing Women podcast. And the most frequent push or external variables identified in the literature as being associated with pushing women out of the workforce or derailing women's advancement include things like lack of mentoring and sponsorship, exclusion from informal networks or the good old boys club, lack of flexibility, motherhood penalties, gender stereotyping, the male-centered work ethos, that 24-7 availability model, and the glass ceiling, which is all of those invisible rules that create barriers that inhibit women from rising to the highest echelons, regardless of their qualifications or achievements. And on the other side are those pull variables, the internal explanations in the literature correlated with women's exit from the workforce or slow tracking of their careers. And these include things like women opting out or slow tracking their careers related to motherhood, desire for work-life balance, and lack of desire for promotion or low desire for power. And it is these pull variables that tend to gain so much traction in the media and in organizations. And of course, these exonerate all except women. It's not the organizations, societal or structural inequities, biases, or any of those push variables. It's the women's quote unquote choices that hinder their advancement. But here's the thing. Those individualized explanations don't hold up to scrutiny. There are just too many holes in these arguments, too many places where pull individual women narratives are covering up push structural narratives. And we need to interrupt that. And the good news is the data is there to help us do just that. Here are some examples where we might flip the script on narratives that are inaccurate and don't serve women. We can swap out the blame in favor of a more accurate narrative that identifies real obstacles that hinder the meritocracy utopia we seek. Work-life balance, the idea that women choose it over advancement, this biased stereotype of women, the idea that women choose this life of leisure over advancement is absurd. And I'm sure women listening to this episode, drinking or eating something, probably just spit out their drink laughing hearing this. I mean, when was the last time you prioritized your leisure? Flipping the script is about addressing the social, cultural, and structural biases and barriers that too often push women to make this difficult choice. Things like the second shift research from Dr. Arlie Hochschild and others that show that women who work the same hours as male counterparts are still expected culturally to take on the lion's share of home responsibilities or the extreme work model research derived from this antiquated breadwinner homemaker model that is still pervasive despite the fact that women are very much in the workforce and looking to advance. Then you've got this motherhood pull explanation that we constantly hear, but the research shows a clear motherhood penalty where women are often pushed to the margins when they return to work and seen as less committed, while the exact opposite is true of fathers who actually experience a fatherhood premium after having kids. Census data shows that more than three quarters of women with children work outside the home. They're not choosing motherhood over professional advancement. They are being inequitably relegated to the margins. And let's tackle this power ambition narrative. 
Boy, does the media love the storyline that women don't want power, that they aren't willing to do what it takes to get it. And this, of course, ignores what we know about the data on biases and barriers, things like gender socialization, how we describe and prescribe what women and men should be like, this think leader, think male bias, the ambition penalties women experience, the history of male endocentrism, where what works for men is the default and women are expected to just adapt. This is the accurate narrative, not this idea that women aren't ambitious or don't want power. And importantly, we need to tackle the argument of hiring, quote unquote, the best candidate for the job. Since men so often get the top roles, we are meant to accept that they are the best candidate and that there is somehow an expertise, qualification, or character trait deficit between men and women, where in this fair, unbiased, meritocratic utopia, female candidates had just as much of a chance as male candidates. Unfortunately, for those who cling to this fairy tale, there is just too much research and data proving this is not the case. Researchers have found plentiful evidence of several patterns of bias in the workforce, which serve to blur the objective evaluation of competence. One of the patterns that has emerged often in the research is what Williams and Dempsey coin the prove-it-again barrier. Prove-it-again bias shows that women are forced to prove their competence over and over, whereas men are given the benefit of the doubt. It is rooted in confirmation bias, in evaluating candidates for hire or promotion. Often the information confirming stereotypes is noted, remembered, and comes top of mind, whereas information contrary to stereotypes is easily dismissed. Men must prove their competence. Women must prove it again and again. And this pattern manifests in so many ways proven out in the research. And anyone who doesn't believe me, send me an email and I will happily fill your inbox with evidence-based scholarly research showing over and over exactly what I'm espousing here. Bias patterns that result in a not-at-all level playing field for women. For example, research shows that male candidates are often judged on potential, while female candidates tend to be judged solely on what they have already achieved, what they have proven. And men's successes are often attributed to skill, while women's are overlooked or attributed to luck. With mistakes, though, it's the exact opposite. And here's a really important one to note because it happens all the time as women are applying for jobs, interviewing for jobs, and when in the job, they're vying for promotion. Research shows that quote unquote objective requirements are strictly applied to women, but leniently applied to men. This is called casuistry or casuistic bias, and it is pervasive, dangerous, and unfortunately, often invisible. It's a sneaky bias that emerges in this meritocracy mindset and hiring the quote-unquote best candidate. So here's a question. When we talk about hiring the best candidate, what traits, what qualifications does the research show are the most important for a given job? You may be surprised to hear the answer, or maybe not. The answer is whatever the male candidate has. Numerous studies show this to be the case. For example, in a Princeton University study, researchers created a resume for two fictitious job applicants, one better educated, the other with more relevant professional work experience. 
The researchers gave the resume to participants asking which candidate they would hire varying the gender of the applicants, better educated female, more experienced male, and vice versa. In the control group where gender was left ambiguous, 48% ranked education as more important, and 78% chose the candidate from the two resumes with more education. When gender was made explicit, though, a pattern emerged. When the better educated candidate was male, the control group pattern held. 75% chose the better educated male candidate over the more experienced female candidate. But when the female had more education, only 22% said education was more important and only 43% selected the woman with more education versus 75% when the male had higher education. So in short, all groups gave less weight to a qualification when a woman had it versus when a man had the same qualification. And again, this pattern of bias is called casuistry. And casuistic bias is essentially the application of general principles or rules to justify a particular behavior. And it's specious reasoning to rationalize biased behavior. People believe they are using objective criteria to make a hiring or promotion decision when, in fact, they are modifying the criteria based on unconscious bias. And here's the kicker. Studies show that evaluators who shifted the criteria to make hiring decisions depending on race or gender of an applicant actually rated themselves as more objective than those who didn't. And this is a jarring example of the lengths people will go to to convince themselves they are being objective when, in fact, they are not. It illustrates the importance of educating people and acknowledging how this bias works, this sneaky, implicit bias, these seemingly invisible but very real and very dangerous obstacles. It is crucial to see how the idea of, the utopia of meritocracy coexists in a data-driven, evidence-based, proven set of inequitable social, cultural, structural biases and barriers that negatively impact women wanting to advance. And so the myth of meritocracy is dangerous because it's situated in bias that leads to less empathy that leads to self-imposed blame for women, that absolves companies, cultures, and organizations from culpability. And so when this happens, we see less commitment to interrupting the status quo and creating the change we need for a more equitable and fair playing field. And we know this is true when we examine responses to gender bias surveys. It is very well documented. Common responses on gender bias surveys are that barriers have been broken down, women have moved up, things are much better, and gender equity is just around the corner. And if we buy into this, if it ain't broke, don't fix it fallacy, we will continue to see the inequity and the very real negative consequences to women, organizations, and society. So my manifest statement is this. Today's meritocrats who still claim that we fairly and equitably get ahead through sheer talent and effort, through means open to anyone, are perpetuating the status quo. Meritocracy frames the bias against and resulting exclusion of women in top-level positions of power, pay, and prestige as a failure to measure up, and this adds moral insult to economic injury. Clinging to the belief in a meritocracy is not only false, 
It's bad for women, bad for organizations, and bad for companies. Because when women take their place as leaders, economies and societies thrive. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo, and thanks to all of you for joining me here today.